One, two, one, two, three, four. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Super excited to feature Doug Landis on our show this week. We'll talk to Doug in a little bit. This is your host, Sam Jacobs. I'm the founder of the New York Revenue Collective. If you don't know what the Revenue Collective is, we are a group of VP and above sales leaders and marketing leaders right now in New York. We're also launching London and a few other cities that come together to share best practices and to encourage each other's professional development. So when I say that I'm the founder of that group, that's what we do. And then my day job is I'm the chief revenue officer of an amazing company called Behavox. Now, this week on the podcast, we've got two amazing sponsors. The first is one that we've been working with uh, for a little while now. They're called Aircall. And Aircall is a phone system designed for the modern sales team. They seamlessly integrate into your CRM. They eliminate all of that crappy data entry that you always have to deal with. And they give you greater visibility into how your team is performing through advanced reporting and analytics. So when it's time to scale, you can add new lines in minutes, not days or, or weeks. And you can use in-call coaching to reduce ramp time for your new reps. They're rolling out a new sales module this summer, which we're all really excited about. And you can visit aircall.io forward slash sales hacker uh, to see why companies like Uber, Dun & Bradstreet, Pipedrive, and thousands of others trust Aircall for their most critical sales conversations. So that's Aircall. And then our second sponsor is Outreach.io. They are the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth by prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagements with intelligent automation. Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. Hop over to outreach.io forward slash sales hacker to see how thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, and Zillow, rely on outreach to deliver higher revenue per sales rep. So thanks for listening, uh, Sam Jacobs, and let's listen to our interview with Doug Landis from Emergence Capital. Folks, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. I'm incredibly excited for my guest today. My guest today is a guy that a lot of folks in the startup world know. I first met him, I think, uh, on a phone call when I think Doug was working at Box and he, I was working at Axial and he was kind enough to sort of give some tips. But let me tell you about Doug Landis. He's currently a growth partner at Emergence Capital, one of the best VCs that I know of in the Valley and, and investing in companies all over the country and the world. Prior to joining Emergence, where Doug's been, I think he'll correct me, but about a year and a half, Doug spent 12 years driving sales productivity and efficiency inside of some of the world's top technology companies, including Box, Salesforce, and Google. So prior, immediately prior to emergence, he held the coveted title of Chief Storyteller and VP of Sales Productivity and Enablement at Box. I'm sure he will tell us what that means. And then before that, he was leading corporate sales productivity at Salesforce. I believe in looking at his LinkedIn that he got started many years ago at Oracle before finding his way into startup world. And uh, we're so excited to have you, Doug. So welcome to the show. Thank you. That's, uh, that's quite the intro. You're, Sounds like I've done a lot. You're a very important person. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know about that. I've, I think I think half of my half of my success is is luck, and the other half is skill. Well, that sounds like you've been reading this book, uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. But at least you attribute some portion of your success to luck, which is unlike most people in the world. Absolutely. Well, look, I mean. At the end of the day, it's about our people. It's about our network. It's about who we know and how we can be helpful. If you go into every connection, like Sam, you and I, we go into every connection with, how can I be helpful to you? Because at the end of the day, it's going to come full circle. 
well, this is not part of like the scripted interview, but you are reiterating my life motto, which is my whole theory in life is how can I be helpful? And it's also like long-term greedy because if you're somebody that always helps people, then by definition, they come to you for help and you become influential. So it's both self-interested and karmic. Um, (laughs) I tend to follow the karma a little bit more than the self-interest. At least I like to think so, but yeah, you're totally responsible. But they're aligned. They converge. So it's a, it's a useful benefit. Yeah. So walk us through, you know, we're obviously going to hear a lot about what you're doing for your portfolio companies and where you spend time at emergence, but in many ways, it seems like you've led a pretty, for, for sort of a sales professional, a storied life, a charmed life in the sense that you've been at some of the best, most coveted, most prestigious companies. How did that happen? And tell us about sort of coming out of undergrad, what was your background, where are you from, and then walk us through a little bit of the path that led you to emergence over the last you know 20 or so years. Yes, yes. So uh, a large part of my path to success is luck. And then once I get involved in an organization, then that is all on me. That's the skill part, right? So I grew up in Palo Alto. When you grow up in Palo Alto, you're kind of growing up in the backyard of technology. Although when I was growing up in Palo Alto, it was still a little college town before all the millionaires kicked out the everyday folk. <laughs> and then now, by the way, the billionaires have kicked out the millionaires, which is why I can never live in Palo Alto again. But um, Well, maybe you can still be a billionaire at some point. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. But I don't know if I would go back to Palo Alto. But the, but the truth is, it's almost like if you, you, know, you grew up in LA and you know, you're just kind of around Hollywood. If you grew up in New York and you're around finance or ad tech, grew up in Chicago and you're around textiles, when you're around it, you tend to just kind of be drawn to it. Right. So I went to the University of Oregon, was political science major, was going to go to law school. My father, who was a lawyer, talked me out of it. Our whole family at the core were all sellers. And I think I just I started selling when I was selling newspapers as a little kid. And it's just kind of been in my blood. And as I got involved, my first job right out of college was actually working for Black & Decker selling power tools and accessories. Like, oh, wow. I don't think that's on your LinkedIn. No, it's not. It's, you know, <laughs> and it was the best job ever because they literally gave me a company car and a bunch of product and incredible training back at headquarters. But then I covered from Canada to Mexico and I would just drive by a hardware store as much, not walk up, talk to the owner and try and sell them power tools and accessories. It was insane. It was like that has to be like the best crash course in sales possible. Yeah, because what do you have to do? You have to be able to assess a business in a matter of moments. You've got to be able to read people. You have to understand how to articulate value to someone that's running a store in the middle of you know in the middle of BFE, where you know they're they're not really thinking about margin. They're thinking about just their their happy customers. And you have to be able to do all that on the fly and be able to articulate why our products are better or different and what it actually means for the business. And yeah, it's being able to have a business conversation instantly is really difficult. And in fact, it's one of the things that I think is often lacking in the world of sales. Salespeople are so quick to like focus on, okay, prospecting skills and negotiation skills, kind of like their core selling skills. But one of the things that's, that I find is often missed is just how to have a business conversation. How to go to Max and look at his business as sales hacker and go, what does he really do? And how does he generate money? Many people have asked yeah, that so, question. <laughs> no offense, Max. I know what you do. We love you, Max. And he makes a lot of money at it. But, but being able to assess that so then I can then connect who I am and what our company does and the value that we deliver to Max. 
and to hit is there training that you that you espouse or drill into people to enable them to which is it's all sort of like a form of empathy it's coming into a situation and putting yourself in the other person's shoes oh are there God. skills or tactics or traits that you that you use you just took the words right out of my mouth i don't care what methodology you buy into challengers spin you know sandler i don't really give a shit about any of that the truth is they're all the same at the core what truly helps you differentiate yourself and your company is your ability to be empathetic and empathy is demonstrated in your ability to articulate what you understand about the person that you're meeting with about their world their role their job their industry their company and everything that you know about them so actually being empathetic is the core of being able to actually have a business conversation if you think about it it's also getting your MBA, I think, is helpful because it helps you to think through like how do businesses think about making money and gross margin and their competitors and growth and scale and, and expansion, et cetera. If you haven't had that opportunity to do that, well, go try and start a company. See what it's like. Like it's <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. And I've I've started three in my over the course of my life, and I'm not gonna lie, it is incredibly difficult because the, what you realize is the world of a startup and the founders of all the companies that might be listening to this podcast today, at the end of the day, it's about trade-offs. I only have so much money and so much time. And what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on building these capabilities? Are we going to focus on going in a new market? Are we going to focus on going up market? We're going to focus on hiring. Like I got to do all these things and I need to do them all now, but you can't, right? So how do you, how do you make those trade-offs? And when you understand that, it makes it easier and easier to understand what someone who is a business owner goes through. Like if I'm trying yeah. to sell to, and, even, and the funny thing is, is you may think like, okay, I'm trying to sell to Oracle as a potential customer. They're huge. Uh, you know, they're one of the biggest software companies in the world. So how do I understand what their business drivers are as an organization, what they care about, what they're trying to accomplish as a company? Well, go read their 10K or their 10Q. You know, Larry, when he does his earnings calls, will say, here's what we're focused on. You know, it's funny. Yep. There are times when people tried to sell the box and, and, you know, I'd be like, I would love to buy your product, but we are hyper-focused on getting to become cash flow positive. That means we're not spending any money across the board. That means no matter how good your product is, I cannot get any budget for this unless I'm replacing something that we've already allocated budget for, right? And so if you understood that, then you would change the nature of our conversation if you were trying to sell me, sell me when I was at box. The number of people that don't take the opportunity to read a 10K is always surprising to me because there is so much information in there that is just so valuable yeah. to just put yourself in the mind of the business executive. Yeah, but I think that I think one of the challenges is people don't know what to look for when you're reading that. What should we look for? I mean, you're looking for insight as far as what the company is focused on. What what yeah. you know? Are they growing in terms of net new logos, or are they growing through margin? Are they growing through expansion? What's their churn look like? What new markets are they are they potentially targeting, or what new products are they delivering, and how well are they actually selling those products? You're thinking about overall their ability to execute in the market. Are they in first place in their market? Are they in third place? And what are they trying to do? Get to second? And are they trying to get to second through mergers and acquisitions? Or are they trying to get to second through new products or new pricing? What matters yeah. to them? Because every single person in the organization, their job is measured against what the company's overall objectives are. Yeah, I mean, it's a great insight. So you're at Black & Decker, you're driving around the country from <laughs> Mexico to Canada, which is, by the way, that's a, lot, that's a territory yeah, totally. for you. <laughs> and then how did you end up at Salesforce? I, I think that, you know, because I feel like you were at Salesforce, I don't know if uh, Aaron Ross was there at the same time, but sort of like you were at two 
of the archetypical SaaS businesses yeah. with Salesforce being like the archetype during their period of maximum growth, maximum kind of emergence and visibility. How did you end yeah. up there? Yeah. So uh, funny enough, Aaron and Ross and I both grew up in Palo Alto. Um, ironically, so maybe there's something about Palo Alto, but so it was a, it's a crazy journey. So I was at Black and Decker, they moved me all over the country and they wanted me to go back to headquarters. And I was like, I want to get back to talking about technology because I love it. I grew up around it. And so I, I moved back to the Bay area to go work at Oracle. And funny enough, I was a field seller at Black and Decker calling on Lowe's corporate, right? Calling on, um, these big, huge hardware chains. And then I go back to Oracle to be an SDR. SDR. Wow. Had to wear a suit, had to get up at, you know, get in the office at 5.30 every day, 5.30 in the morning every day, had to make 100 calls a day. And if we didn't hit that number, we were worried that we were going to get fired. Yes, sometimes we game the system. We were calling fax machines, but back then you couldn't really <laughs> tell. It was a total grind. And they made, they made you wear a suit oh, to do day. that. Yeah. There was a, I mean, look, there's this funny thing about, you know, look good, feel good, feel good, do good, right? There's this, like when you're in jeans and a t-shirt and you're comfortable, yeah, you may be comfortable, but there's an element of like, when you're dressed up and you're polished, your game feels a little bit more polished. When you're, when you're casual, your game feels a little bit more casual. It's just something that I've experienced as a professional. I, and I certainly don't dress up, uh, you know, all day, every day now. You're a pretty of, sharp dresser though. I think like, uh, I saw you at Rainmaker, you were looking pretty good. <laughs> Well, it, it kind of matters, right? It's, you know, people make impressions, unfortunately, by what you say and how you look and what you do. And, and all of those things add up. I'm not trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, but it certainly does matter. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So you were an um, SDR at Oracle. I didn't even know they had SDRs back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. The whole machine that Salesforce built, sorry, Aaron Ross, you can't take credit for this because <laughs> the machine that Salesforce built started at Oracle. And where do you think Mark got it? He got it from Ray Lane. Ray I, Lane built the SDR EBR, inside sales, because at, or, at Oracle, it was SDR, and then you went to NT sales, which was selling Microsoft version of their database, and then you went and you sold middleware, and then you moved up to selling applications and, you know, full database, or database and applications. So, they, they built that machine, and then Mark took that over to, to Salesforce. I didn't know that. I just wrote down Ray Lane. I'm going to find that guy and get him on this podcast if he's still alive. Um, yeah, hopefully. good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, he is. He is. I mean, Ray was, you know, Ray was was Larry's right hand man. Yeah. So you learn the trade at Oracle, and then maybe yes. Salesforce comes calling, or Mark knows that you know that's the place to go to get all of his proteges. Is that what happened? How you made the yeah, move? Yeah. Well, I mean, Salesforce? there were some start- yeah, there were some startups in between there that I had started, and then I, of course I did a bunch of reality TV shows. Totally different story. We're not going to talk about that today. We have um, to talk about that really. I, I ended up, TV I shows. Ended up, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've done four in my life, which is kind of crazy. These um, were your concepts, or you were like on the real world at some point? No, and I just have to go back. Yeah, yeah. I was a I was a participant. Um, they wow. were more sports oriented than they were kind of dating oriented. Although I did one of those. We don't like to talk about that at parties. But beside the point, I was kind of like effing around, if you will, trying to decide what I wanted to do. And then it actually ended up at Google, which was, again, fortuitous because I had a friend of mine that was working there and she's like, hey, you know, you've got all this great sales knowledge and experience. And at the time, you know, post startup failure, if you will, I was was like trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do with my life when I grew up. That's when I realized like this world of accelerating the performance of salespeople because I love the art and the science of selling. Always have. It's been in my blood. And this idea of like, how do we make salespeople smarter, better, and faster what they do was something that I just kept falling back on 
and so then I had the opportunity to go run training and development over at Google. And when I was at Google, the one thing that I learned is at the time it was very much an engineering driven organization. So if you're in sales, they're like, yeah, you don't really matter because all you have to do is pick up the phone and say, hi, I work for Google and people will talk to you. Wasn't really the case, but that was certainly the perception of the organization. And then again, I had some friends that were working at Salesforce and an opportunity came up there. They called me and I was like, well, it's the best selling organization in the world. I'm going, period. And that's how it all started to unfold. And so, you know, we were talking about this before we hit record, but your title at Salesforce was Director of Corporate Sales Productivity. Yes. And, you know, meanwhile, uh, over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, there's been this concept of enablement that's emerged. How are those, are those things the same thing? Are they different things? Walk us through specifically what productivity means and how you think it relates to enablement. Yes, yes totally. So first of all, I'm just going to say this right now. I'm on a mission. Stop saying enablement. Sales <laughs> enablement doesn't exist. Look up enablement. I went to dictionary.com, type in the word enablement. It's not even a word. It doesn't show up. Is that true? It is true. Literally. Wow. I went to when this before we got before we hit record. I looked up enablement, dictionary.com, Google. It doesn't exist. So why do we say it? What does enablement mean? So when I got to Salesforce, first it was my title was like like director of sales effectiveness, and I was working under the education team. It was like, what are we doing here? We need to be under sales. It doesn't make any sense. And eventually, we we found our way under sales. Um, and at that point, we coined the term sales productivity. It didn't exist before. And so, what are you doing differently than the man? Do you work alongside the frontline manager? You know, how yeah. does that? Just yeah, yeah, tell totally. me how it relates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let, let me, I'll kind of explain. And this is why I get yeah. on this like pedestal about enablement. To me, enablement, by the way, it's a marketing term. Marketing came, came up with it because when you're enabling a salesperson, in my mind, you are, you are giving them assets of information and intelligence that you can use on a phone call, right? So uh, um, I'm enabling you with competitive tear sheets. I'm enabling you with industry intel. I'm enabling you with, with, with assets. It's, it's a marketing function for salespeople. I love it. It's necessary. But fundamentally, the way I look at the world is I am in the business of how do we accelerate the performance of our sales organization or anybody that's really customer facing for that matter. Because sellers nowadays, it's not a singular function where I've got a physical item and I sell it to you and then I'm done. The reality is, is we're all revenue drivers if you're customer facing, right? Where our job is to earn our customers' business every single month. And that is, that is, that, that is what recurring revenue is all about. That right. is the implicit promise. A hundred percent. Right. And so, so to do that, we're all involved, marketing, sales, customer success, support. We're all involved in that relationship, including product and engineering for that matter. And so the idea is how do we then eliminate the things that get in the way of a salesperson's ability to actually find the right people, have the right conversations, uncover and create opportunities and close deals faster and, and in turn earn the revenue, right? To me, that is ultimately what we want to do is we want to incrementally increase the productivity, which you can define as dollars per head for every single rep. And so, so how do you, how do you do that? Right. So part of it is you have to unpack it. So when, when, you know, we, it, it, when it, it box, it would be this phrase, it's like, uh Oh, rep productivity is down. It's like, Oh shit. Cause everyone would look at me. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I can't control everything because what you have to think about is when rep productivity is down, is it, is it a sales execution challenge? Meaning, do they not have the right skills to actually go out and do their job? Is it actually kind of more of an operational challenge, which is they don't have the right territories, they don't have the right quotas, Salesforce is set up incorrectly, we don't have the right data in Salesforce, or is it a market problem? Meaning, 
the market isn't mature enough. There's competition in the market. Our pricing or packaging isn't appropriate. We're not doing enough from an air coverage perspective to actually educate the market so that there's some level of awareness of who we are and what we do, right? So there's so many things that affect a rep's ability to do their job. And in the world of sales productivity, it is fundamentally anchored around how do we help our reps do a better job. Marketing and sales enablement content is a part of that, but it's not the whole thing. I so if you're thinking about sales enablement, I well, hate it. <laughs> The kings of or the um, the emperors, whoever it is that is the the largest champion of of enablement, will provide a very expansive but kind of abstract definition. And what you just did around enablement was actually very helpful because you're like, these are the things that you do. You create competitive tear sheets. You create the right marketing material. Right. So applying that same kind of tactical lens to productivity and thinking about enablement as one part of it, what are the common things that are in the way of salespeople being productive and effective? And what are the ways that you help solve those problems? There's a number of things, right? So it starts with onboarding. How do we get our salespeople ready to have the right conversations quickly? Right, and so what does that mean? That means they have to understand the product, they have to understand the market, they have to understand their message, their competitors, the pricing. Right, so that's a lot of intel. That's a lot of knowledge that they need to be able to consume, comprehend, and reorient. Right, or shall we say, redeliver? So there's yeah. an element of onboarding. There's an element of certification. There's an element of messaging. There's an element of demoing. So there's skills. There's knowledge. There's tools associated with that. Right. So if you think about the world of productivity, you can actually think about it in terms of skills, tools, and knowledge. I put sales enablement because most of that's content in that tool bucket. Right. You could even orient it around some some sort of knowledge, but knowledge to me is also how you get access to that information. So, is your Salesforce set up properly? Are you are you leveraging the right tools like Guru or like to, Learn to, Core, or Mind Core, Tickle, Mind Tickle, something to serve up that information to you when you need it? I actually I, I said something incorrectly. If you think about it, skills, tools, and knowledge, tools are all the gurus and the you know the learn cores, the mind tickles, the sales lofts, the choruses, of, if you will, the tools, the sales forces, the tools that I use to help me do my job. Unfortunately, we have tool fatigue, and we likely have too many tools, and it's hard to understand the workflow of how to leverage all these tools. Because sometimes, if I'm spending more time in the tools and I'm not spending enough time in front of my customers, well, then that's an issue. Right, that's a real problem. Yeah. So, it's, it's, so if you think about productivity, there's one way to measure, which is dollars per head per rep. Like, how many dollars am I generating out of each head? It's also a matter of thinking about, well, how much time are they actually able to spend in front of customers? Right. So, on average, in our world, unfortunately, 25% of a rep's time is actually spent engaged selling. So, what are they doing <laughs> with the other 75% of their time? They're in one-on-ones, team meetings, trainings. They're meeting with their SE, they're meeting with their CSM, they're strategizing about deals, they're prospecting, or they're researching, they're doing a lot of things. They're learning, they're studying the product, right? They're getting trained. So how can we remove the, the friction from all the things that a rep actually has to do so that they can spend more time selling? That's fundamentally- Do you have like a favorite thing. thing that you typically do in the playbook? Um, actually, a playbook is one, right? So building out a playbook. So first, we talked about onboarding as a function, as an important function, because that sets the stage for their, their success. It also helps you as a team and even as a leader determine whether or not someone's going to be successful right away, because you get, to, you get a sense of their work ethic early on, right? You get a sense of their, their aptitude and their ability to actually learn quickly on the fly. And so, so onboarding is an important component, though, but also sales process, right? So the process in which how we manage opportunities. 
it's interesting, but because you know, opportunity management as a as a whole is not something that we spend a whole lot of time focusing on. Frontline sales managers do because they're doing all that you know real time coaching on how to navigate this opportunity and how to actually move it through the cycle. And then sales ops and sales productivity might think about like the playbook for entrance and exit criteria for each stage. But how to actually get through a stage is something that we don't spend enough time on. And to me, that's where a playbook really fits, right? It's like defining all of the, you know, kind of what is my goal for that stage? What's that? What's my strategy for this stage? What are the tactics or milestones that I have to hit in order to be able to move from one stage to the next? The hard part, though, of course, about a playbook is you may build it on paper, but it's operationalizing that inside of Salesforce. So it makes it very easy, and you can coach against that, and you can see kind of where the steps are being missed. I know that like our buddy Rob Jepson with Exvoyant is really trying to do that right now with our company. It's like operationalizing playbooks because it's really, really hard to do. And it, yeah, it and, is and hard it's to more do. than just coaching, right? It's a combination of data, insights, technology, and coaching, right? It's like presenting the right information at the right time, right. at the right point in the sales conversation, right. which, you know, again, is more than just enablement because it's also ask these questions, make sure you've got access to these people. Yes. Let's diagram the sale. Let's look at where we are, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. I also think of the world of, of sales productivity as, as, of course, kind of ongoing skill development. We can always get smarter, better, and faster at in the skills that we have, right? And so it, how do you assess whether or not a rep is actually a great closer or a great prospector? Do you just look at the data? Do you look at how much pipeline, you know, how much pipeline is sourced by the AE and then say, okay, they're not really a great pipeline generator, or maybe they just don't like doing it. Right. Or how do we like like so so that's why if you look at the sales equation, which is number of opportunities times average deal size times your win rate divided by your sales cycle, and if you build out the benchmarks of those numbers within your organization, then you can measure somebody against that. So if your win rate, by the way, is lower than average then what does that mean? In order for you to get your number, you need more opportunities, right? Or I need to coach you on how to block and tackle our competition, or I need to coach you on how to qualify deals out a lot faster because maybe you're hunting down deals that just aren't a good fit for us, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest uh, challenges that most managers tell me is reps spending a lot of time on deals that are not winnable. 100%. 100%. And you know the single biggest competitor that we all face, every one of us, I don't care what industry you're in, what is it? Status quo. Yep. No decision. Right? And so if I'm getting if I'm finding myself in these common situations where I'm getting no decision, then I need to do a better job upfront qualifying. Yeah. Because I am not doing enough in that regard. I'm not qualifying out enough. One of the and big like, questions people say is like, are you comfortable telling me no? It's people don't understand that they can force the buyer to just say, Hey, let me know where we are with this thing and it's perfectly okay if we're nowhere. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, some of the best reps I've seen over the course of my life are the ones that actually can say no. They know how to say no confidently, not as an asshole, not as like, oh, I'm just doing this to, for as a power move. They're doing it because they understand their own personal value in the exchange and they understand the value of their company and their solution and what they bring to the table. Yeah. It's hard to do. To yeah, it is. But if you think about everything that we've just talked about, that's sales productivity. Enablement doesn't do that. A marketer that's building assets can't, you know, go run and you know, an entire onboard. I mean, they can. It's about skill, but you know, go run onboarding for an organization because they haven't actually sold. They don't what, understand what, what a frontline sales manager does. If you're looking at like a great 
onboarding program? How long should it take? Um, what are the is is it certification? Is it classroom training? Is it a mixture of like you know make these fifty calls to these bad leads so that you can get in the habit of having the conversation? Plus the like, what does an excellent onboarding program look like? Yes, all of the above. Great. Ninety days. <laughs> Ninety days. Ninety okay. days. Your first 90 days. Most onboarding programs are your, is your first week, but I believe there should be pre-work ahead of time. There is your first week or two weeks at headquarters where you're getting ingratiated into the culture and understanding who's who in the zoo in your organization. Because by the way, how you get things done internally within your organization has a huge impact on your ability to get things done with, with your customer. Right? Massive impact. So all those things are important to set you up to actually get on the phone come day one. But simulations are incredibly important real life simulations. So if I just give you a competitive dump, I'm you know I work at Box and I'm telling you about how we compete against OneDrive and Dropbox and everybody else in the space, the at G Drive whatever else. It's one thing for me to tell you, it's another thing for me to paint some pictures of some customer stories of, of like how how they we overcame those situations. It's another thing to put you in a situation which is like, okay, so I'm trying to compare you and OneDrive, and we have an enterprise agreement with Microsoft. Why should I buy you? <laughs> right? And put them in those real-life situations. Now, if you've got a, a sales team that is dispersed across the country, it's harder to do that, but there are platforms like the likes of LearnCore, SalesHood, or MindTickle that can actually help you do that right? at scale. So, I mean, I think certification is one step in the journey, but don't stop. It continues on. Your learning can, should continue in your first 90 days because you can't teach somebody everything in the first two weeks, right? No, you and can't. I mean, that's always... You have to learn when you're on the job, right? Yeah, of course. But when, how do I create a quote? I don't need to know that my first week unless I'm in VSB and I'm doing, I could potentially be doing deals on my very first day I get on the phones. But for the most part, I don't. No, you're absolutely right. I think a, a lot of folks want, you know, onboarding to be a one and done kind of thing where it's like one to two weeks, that's it. And then we just start looking at our watch waiting for the first deal to close. Right. And it doesn't always work like right. that. Well, and, and I got to tell you, so unfortunately, frontline sales managers don't help a lot. They can be super helpful, but they can also be a giant pain in the ass. Here's the thing that I suggest, highly suggest. Number one, frontline sales managers need to be bought into the entire onboarding plan. So 90 days, frontline sales managers have to be bought in because it's their job to help drive the engagement in that plan. There's nothing worse than a frontline sales manager is like, oh, I've got this guy, I want him to start tomorrow, and your, your new boot camp starts on Monday. And it's like, well, they haven't, they're not going to be ready. They haven't done any of the pre-work. Then I need you to hold them accountable to getting it done over the weekend so that come Monday they know what the hell they're talking about and they don't get lost because we're going to move at a clip. The other thing is, is to work with your recruiters and your executive team to ensure that your start dates are all consistent so you can create cohorts. So start yep. a cohort every two weeks. So if you hire somebody, guess what? I don't care if you hire them a week and a half ago. They don't start until Monday, right? So it creates some consistency because there's nothing worse than trying to do an onboarding for two people. Yeah, or even if, if you're an early stage company and you're not and you're hiring like five people, but to the point, like group them together yes. or else like every, every Monday, uh, you know, the, some senior executive has to be bought into like giving the history of the company. Right. You could have done that once and do it <laughs> right. once a month. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible waste of resources, unfortunately, when that happened. So you were, you were at box and then now you're in this really exciting, uh, role at Emergence. And I think one of the things that's super interesting about it is the number of different kind of companies that you see. So tell us about the new role and sort of what your mandate is, and then we can we can go from there. Yeah, yeah, sure. So again, got super lucky 
fortunately because of the companies that I worked for and, and, and kind of the role that I had in those organizations. And, you know, Emergence came to me to talk about this idea of a role like this. Emergence as a venture firm, as a tier one venture firm, is we're hyper-focused on basically working with people who want to change the future of work. But what that means is under the domain of B2B enterprise SaaS, right? Hmm. And so we're hyper-focused. That's all we invest in. You know, early investors in Salesforce and Yammer and Box and and success factors and ServiceMax, and so as a result of my experience both at Salesforce and Box and Google and and Oracle and the others, it kind of made sense for me to join to help our portfolio companies overcome the hurdles that they commonly face on the go-to-market side when they're trying to scale from a million to ten million to fifty million. At the end of the day, my job is to help them scale faster. Right. And truthfully, it's about helping them to recognize the patterns that every Series A and Series B stage company faces. Like, what, I, what I'm learning about the world of venture capital is we're in the business of pattern recognition, right? We're, we're in the business of pattern recognition of opportunities. And once we invest in a company, it's helping them to recognize the pattern of what not to do so that they can grow, so they can overcome some of the, the hurdles that we've seen people really struggle with. Where do you end up spending a lot of your time? So um, I get super tactical. I get in the weeds um, with our companies, and we go through it literally the same. It's the same stuff for every company. It starts with, okay, who's our ideal customer profile and why? Like, who's buying our product and why? What do we know about them? And are we actually messaging to our buyer? Or are we messaging to the companies that we want to sell to? It's a really interesting nuance. We may think like our product may be designed more for IT, but we actually go sell to CEOs and VPs of sales. Well, if our product is designed for IT, how do you bridge that gap when you're selling to a VP of sales or a CEO or a CIO, right? So it's that it's understanding who our customers are, who our buyers are, what do we know about them, and it's aligning our messaging and our positioning around that. And far too often, and what I learned from my storyteller role, which I created when I was at Box, is everybody, every company is hyper arrogant in their positioning, meaning all they do is they talk about themselves. Look at how great we are. Look at all of our customers. Look what we do for our customers. And they don't orient the conversation around what we've learned from our customers, right? And what our customers have taught us and what our customers are helping us to, to recognize in terms of the value that we're delivering for them. And so we spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time on messaging and positioning, mission, vision exercises with the founders and the leadership team. And then we get into everything from like sales process, sales playbooks, sales operations, hiring is a huge area of focus. I think, unfortunately, for early stage founders, this idea of an org charter across the organization is, is kind of foreign. Like, who do I hire on the go to market team first? When do I hire a VP of sales? Do you believe, are you, are you a proponent of, you know, maybe after you, you feel like you have something approximating product market fit, go for a senior hire that has the experience building out the team? Are you somebody that wants to develop from within? Do you think that, you know, are you sort of a, a more mercenary VC that's saying, well, we, we'll, we'll get the zero to 10 guy or gal, and then we'll get the 10 to 25 <laughs> guy or gal, and we'll keep swapping them out until until we get to 100? Uh, yes to all of that, <laughs> which, which, means, <laughs> which means no to all of that as well, right? So there's no silver bullet. There really isn't. Part of it depends on the leadership team that you already have in place. 
right? And some some people, when they come to us at Series A, they already have a pretty senior team. They have a VP of sales, right? The, the irony is what I often find is they'll have a VP of sales, but they won't have a head of marketing. I would argue if you're in the seed stage, you better be looking for that head of marketing first. And guess who's your seller? Get that head of marketing because you know who should be selling? Your founders, you know, and, and Pete Kazanji is writing a book about founder selling and how do you actually become a founder seller. So I recommend everyone read it. But the reality is your founders are the ones that are helping you to understand who our customers are, why do they buy, what they buy, what message really resonates with them. And it's not a message that you deliver to your ventures, to your investors. It's a different message. So that's a, that happens a lot, right? So you take your VC pitch and you tweak it a little bit and that becomes your sales kit pitch or your first call pitch. And that totally should not happen at all. But the truth is, is what most founders struggle with is hiring marketing and hiring them first. Because by the way, a VP of sales, a VP of marketer will take you a good six to nine months to hire. A sales leader, whether you hire the sales leader first or the sales reps first, again, it kind of depends on who you have in place as a leadership team. If you've done this before, then I might hire someone. I might hire sales reps before because I know how to manage those two sales reps. If I haven't done this before, then I want to hire a sales leader that can help to build out the machine. But if that's the case, then I need to hire a, a sales leader that's a builder, that knows how to build dashboards and reports in Salesforce, that knows how to actually build board decks, that knows how to A-B test against a hypothesis as far as like, this is where the market's going, and this is who we should be selling to, and this is how we should price, right? So it's a profile of a sales leader that you need to be really cognizant of. But you also need to be, as a leader, you need to be really cognizant of, of where your gaps are right? And your leadership style. If you're super analytical, make sure you hire a sales leader that's super analytical. And that way you're speaking the same language, right? Because there's nothing worse than when you hire somebody that, you know, you think like, oh, I'm super analytical. So I want to hire like the, the charismatic, you know, sales leader, culture guy. It's like, no, that doesn't work. You guys will, it's serious. I, I've seen it happen over and over again, right? So it's being really clear about understanding the type of profile that you're actually looking for. And then, oh, by the way, hire your head of marketing first, then hire your customer success managers. Then hire sales. So hire that. Interesting. It's crazy, right? But everyone's like, oh, I got to hire salespeople. It's like, no, you don't. Go out and sell, Mr. Founder. That's your job. <laughs> you shouldn't be, fo- I mean, like, don't spend all your time focusing on the product, which unfortunately there are a lot of product founders. Focus your time on selling and engaging with your customers and hire a I think a lot of, a lot of the issue is that, um, it hasn't yet, although I think it's penetrating, but you know, you and I are completely the same page, which is higher marketing before sales. The reason people hire sales is because they think sales equals yeah. revenue and it doesn't necessarily sales turns demand into revenue, but without demand sales doesn't 100%. do very much at all. And oh, by the way, in the early days, people don't think they need marketing because they've got all these leads coming in, right? Because guess what? You got all these leads coming in because you're a shiny penny and, and that's going to dry up real quick. And when it dries up, yep. that's when you that's when I see this happens a lot. It starts to dry up. And so it's like, shoot, we need to go get higher head of marketing. And then that takes six to nine months. And now you're way behind, right? The other thing is yeah. when you're hiring a head of marketing, and one of my my colleague, uh, Viviana Faga, who used to be the CMO at Zenefits, who's my counterpart on the marketing side, which is really interesting because she'll often say, Well, what kind of head of marketing do we need? Do we need someone that's got demand gen expertise or product marketing ex- expertise? Or brand expertise, like what what kind of expertise should they have? Typically, it's either from what I've seen, it's either demand gen expertise or product marketing expertise on the marketing side, right? Because we need to know what to say, yeah. or we need to know how to go out and get more leads, or at least reorient our lead <laughs> flow, right? Because a lot of these leads are just junk. 
One of the problems people don't quite understand is they say, you tell them what a demand gen person or, um, you know, like what the responsibilities are, which is to generate demand, of course. And they say, oh, I want that. And, but they haven't spent any time on messaging. And so they don't understand that demand gen person's job is to distribute a message to a channel, but without a message, they don't, there's not very much to do. So, <laughs> so true. You have to create content for them to distribute. Right, right. So, so would you hire a head of product marketing ahead of demand gen? Yeah. Or, or is that something where, again, like I need the founders' insights on, yes. on like what is the message that we're bringing out to the market because they've been selling and they're getting feedback from the customer base, and then I can put that into, you know, right. ads or webinars or whatever it is right. that we're doing. So then it depends on the, your leadership team, your founders, right? Are your founders great marketers, kind of by default? Are they great sellers by default, or are they great customer customer lovers, if you will? You know, yeah. customer, um, you know, customer advocates, like what are they, what are they really good at besides building product? Yeah. And then how can you anchor around that? Cause that'll help you determine, well, then do we need product marketing or demand gen first? This has been an incredible conversation, Doug. Uh, one thing that we like to do at the very end is sort of figure out what are your influences or people or books or podcasts or content that we should be consuming so that we can be as good as Doug Landis. Any recommendations on great books that you think should inform our perspective or people that we should be aware of? Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. He was on my podcast last week. Get out. I love him. <laughs> I, I have like this this weird obsession with him um, that he is now going to be aware of. Um, <laughs> I, I, I run into him all the time. I saw him and I was just enamored with it. Here's the thing. The idea of negotiating, you know, if you think about negotiations, they literally happen the entire life cycle of a customer relationship, right? And so we're always negotiating. We're negotiating for things, you know, internally within an organization, with our families, with our, you know, with our customers, with everybody. And the truth is we think that negotiation is this singular event. It's like an exit for an IPO. It's like, oh, it's a singular event. And then I'm done. It's like, no, it's happening all the time. And the better you can get at negotiating the overall, the better your, all of your conversations and inter interactions will be with your customers. So big, huge fan of Chris Voss and never split the difference. And I get their email uh, newsletters all the time and they're great. It's great little insight. And by the way, the core of great negotiating is empathy. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> what do you that know? word keeps popping up. Yeah, it does. It totally does. And then, you know, I've, I've clearly, you know, listened to and read everything that all of my homies do, whether that's John Barrows or Jocko or Max or Richard Harris. I mean, unfortunately we live in the Bay area, so we get access to all this great information and insight. Another organization that actually creates a lot of great content, especially from like this value selling notion, because we have to get out of this idea of selling transactions, but we have to actually start selling value and help our customers understand why they should give a shit is force management. Now, they, they're super expensive if you want to bring them into your organization, but they write a lot of great content. So that's something else that you should, you should dig into. Yeah, that's about it. I, don't, I, read, I spend most of my time reading articles and not books. Hmm. Well, fair enough. You did a great job because you immediately had an answer, whereas sometimes people get a little flustered and then uh, they hem and they haw. I like somebody <laughs> with, a, with a point of view. I got a point of view. There you go. We appreciate it. Enablement <laughs> sucks. That's hey, your point amen. of view. <laughs> I got a point of view. Productivity, not enablement. Chris Boss rocks. There you go. There you go. If people are listening and they want to reach out to you or connect with you in some way, are you open to that? And if so, what's your preferred method of communication? A hundred percent open to that. Always interested in talking to, to my homies and my cronies and people that I can learn from or people that have great ideas or people who just want to shoot the shit, just reach out to me at Doug at MCAP, E-M-C-A-P.com. 
uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter is at Doug Landis. Hey, everybody, this is Sam's Corner. Um, great conversation with Doug Landis, who is so eloquent and impressive and is doing great work as a growth partner at Emergence. So a couple of key points. One of them is just about the importance of hiring marketing before sales. We talk about that a lot on this podcast, and Doug only reiterated it. Um, the founder should be selling, and you hire marketing before sales. And, and he even mentioned hire ahead of customer success before ahead of sales. The big misconception is oftentimes that folks understand and equate sales to money. And sales is one part of money, but demand is the first part of money. And without demand, you can't harness demand into revenue. So I always say, salesperson with lots of meetings and no process can help an organization grow and make money. They can close deals. And a salesperson with no meetings at all, but a perfect process and perfect solutions and perfect tools uh, can make no money at all. And so the first thing we need to demonstrate is that we can generate demand. And from there, we can scale the rest of the business. So that's been Sam's Corner. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. To check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our absolutely incredible lineup of sales leaders like Doug Landis, visit saleshacker.com and head to the podcast tab. We've got a number of amazing guests coming up, and we've had a bunch of amazing guests already. Uh, Doug mentioned Chris Voss, who was on the show last week. Now, you'll find the Sales Hacking Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. If you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. Best place is probably LinkedIn, so find me on linkedin.com slash and slash Sam F. Jacobs. Mention the podcast in your message to me, and we'll try and get a shout out to you uh, in upcoming episodes. And then finally, big thanks to our sponsors for this episode. They are Aircall, your advanced call center software, complete business phone and contact center, 100% natively integrated into any CRM, and Outreach, a customer engagement platform that helps efficiently and effectively engage prospects to drive more pipeline and close more deals. So I'll see you next time.